Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So as I've been announcing over the past few weeks, the entire church is going to be studying the same thing on Wednesday nights. And so obviously we're going to go in a little bit more in depth than what the kids are going to be learning. But um, they're starting tonight in the Adventure Club. And so all the kids are starting with the same thing, the same memory verse, the same scriptures, all ages. Pastor Andrew is going to be doing the same thing with the youth. And so we thought as a church it would be great if even the adults studied all the same thing. And so um, but basically what this is, is this is a, um, for adults we would call it systematic theology. For kids we're calling it foundations of the faith or key biblical truths. But pretty much between now and when we finish up in May, so the whole school year, um, we're going to be talking about three big doctrines. So we're going to talk about man. So we're going to go into a lot about being created in God's image. What does that mean? And things like that. Then we're going to talk about sin. And then the majority of our time, we're going to talk about all the aspects of salvation. And so these are key doctrines that are under attack today, not only in the secular world, but as I've been telling you guys, I think it was like two years ago when we started in, I think it was January of 21, we did that series on progressive Christianity. And so even among professing quote-unquote evangelical Christians, these doctrines are under attack. So let's just ask some preliminary questions. These are questions that are under attack. Is God the creator of all things? Or was there a big bang? Is it some evolutionary process? Are we just primordial goo that came out of the, the oceans and then evolved into a monkey and then evolved into a man? Um, is man created, here's a big one, is man created male and female? Two distinct sexes that God created in the order of creation. Is marriage a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman? Is that what the Bible teaches? A big thing that's been happening the past couple of years is there's been some um, prominent theologians that are supposedly evangelical that have come out and said, well, Genesis 1 through 11 is basically a myth. We don't really know if Adam was a real person, if Eve was a real person. It's more of just kind of a, a story, a poetic way of talking about how there's evil in the world. So was Adam a real individual was Eve a real individual that brought real sin and spiritual death into the world another question did Adam's sin impact every single human being that's ever lived or did he was he just a bad example that we somehow have followed or did his sin actually impact us with depravity what is the nature of sin are we really that bad and does sin deserve God's wrath is there such a thing as God's wrath, God's justice? Is there such a thing as hell? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And then when we start talking about salvation, is God sovereign over salvation from first to last? From eternity past to eternity future and every aspect in between, is God absolutely sovereign over our salvation? So we're going to address these topics and many more over the next nine months that we're together. 
And so before we study being created in man, man being created in God's image, I, I thought it would be good to go back to the beginning and ask a very foundational question. So here's, here's the question for tonight. What does the opening chapter of the Bible teach us about God? Some have said that the most important thing our culture needs right now is to go back to Genesis 1-1. <laughs> and so, on Christmas Day, 1968, you guys remember it was the lunar landing. It was the Apollo 8, circled the dark side of the moon. Over the horizon of the moon, no, actually it was the year before the, the lunar landing, this was Apollo 8, and um, they were looking at the moon from the, from, the, from the spaceship, the Apollo 8, and these, these highly scientific astronauts, they did not mention Einstein's name when they were looking at space. They did not mention Newton's name. They didn't mention any famous scientists. They didn't even start with lyrics of a song or something from the Beatles or something in the late 60s or the Rolling Stones. They didn't give a poem from Shakespeare. What they said and what could be heard around the world coming from the communications these scientists said, I don't know if you remember this, in the beginning, God. The actual scientists said that, the astronauts. And so I don't think you can be an astronaut or a physicist or a biologist or a geneticist or, a, or an astronaut or a scientist and be honest in your heart of hearts and not see that God is the creator of all things. I would submit to you there's no such thing as an atheist. The Bible says people know there is a God, but they suppress that truth and they hold it down. That's Romans 1, 18 and following. People know there's a God. They just push down that knowledge because they don't want to face it. So let's just read together the opening words, and these are familiar words, but it's good to go back to the beginning. And I won't tell the dumb preacher joke that my dad used to always say, you know, baseball is in the Bible, Sean. Why? Because in the beginning, some of you didn't get that, and some of you didn't think it was that funny. It was a dad joke my whole life growing up, and now I'm a dad, and it's an even worse dad joke. So um, let's read it together, all right? Genesis 1, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 for right now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. A doctor, an architect, and a lawyer were arguing about the oldest profession. The doctor said, well, the first operation was performed on Adam, so the medical profession is the oldest profession. No, the architect said, architectural planning and design were needed to create the earth and the universe out of chaos. So I represent the oldest profession. It's, it's architecture. And then the lawyer said, well, where do you think the chaos came from? Another dad joke. I'm trying to make sure you guys are awake tonight. So the first thing we see about the opening verses of the Bible is this. You, you see the presence of God. Do you, do you realize that God is assumed I mean, 
There's no, it's assumed that God is already there. He's the God who's self-existent. And so the very first word of the Bible is the word beresit. It's Hebrew for in the beginning. And then it's got the, the Hebrew word Elohim. Now there's different names for God in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that more this Sunday. But Elohim is the basic word God. Yahweh is Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, but this is the basic word for God. And really what the word Elohim describes is God's transcendent power, his transcendence, his power. It's it's really equated with him being the sovereign creator. And so from the very beginning, God is the hero of the story. It doesn't start with humans. It starts with God as the main character. Not a city, not an animal. Not a structure, but God. And there is some rich theology just in the few sentences of the Bible about the presence of God. God's assumed. He's already there. He is already on the scene. God has no beginning. He is self-existent. He is the everlasting God who is there. For many months maybe I'd say maybe six or seven years ago, there was a girl that would come up almost every Sunday after church. You know, when I stand down here and say, if anybody wants to come down and talk to me, but she'd come up and she'd ask the same question. Who created God? Nobody created God. Well, how did God get there? God's always been there. Well, how did God start? God didn't have a start. And she would just scratch her head and look at me like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And finally, after about a year of asking these questions, I think it finally clicked. So finally, I, I, kept, I answered the same question over and over again, and finally she's like, oh, you're so, so you're saying God's always been? Yes, God has always been. He's the, he's the existent, always, ever, present, sovereign God. And so we've got some scriptures that teach this. So Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God so before there was ever anything created God is the everlasting God he's always been Psalm 8 verse 1 O Lord our Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you've set your glory above the heavens Psalm 19 verse 1 the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. So he's the everlasting God, he's the majestic God, he's the God of glory. And then Paul, I love the way Paul ends. So chapter Romans chapter 1 through 11 is deep theology that Paul is just kind of going through this deep theology. And then chapter 12, he switches to more practical. But at the end of talking about all this theology, I think Paul was just like overwhelmed with who God was. And that's why Romans eleven thirty three. 33, it starts, what's the word that starts that, that verse? Oh! Do you start, do you start your sentences? This, oh! I think Paul was like, oh! Wow! The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now just stop and think about that. From him come all things. Through him come all things. And to him go all things forever and ever Amen. And then Roman, uh, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here's a question. Why did God create because he was up in heaven, was lonely, right? No, that's what you hear a lot of people say. God was lonely, so he needed to create us human. Why did God create? Jonathan Edwards has an essay called The End to Which God Created the World. And this is, this is how he sums it up. I like the way Jonathan Edwards says it. He says, The great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. What's God's primary reason for doing everything he does? To bring himself glory. It's all about the glory of God. So from the very beginning of the Bible, God is assumed. He's the glorious, sovereign, self-existent, always present, never created, wonderful, majestic, sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth. Now, the second thing we see, this is just verses 1 and 2, okay? The second truth about the opening chapter of the Bible is the pattern of God. Not only do you see the presence of God, he's already there on the scene, but you see the pattern. Now, it's very interesting. What is the pattern Read, read, your, read it carefully. Did, did, did you notice what it said there? The earth was without form and void, and what was over the deep? Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You've got this watery, formless, dark, whatever. So from the very beginning, what is God doing? God transforms darkness into light. God creates order out of chaos. Who is the agent by which God does this? Do you see something about the Trinity there? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You've got God, Elohim, and you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got two persons of the Trinity. Now, what's the pattern in our salvation that you see right here in the opening chapters of Genesis? What, is, what does God do in our salvation? Does God take darkness and turn it into light? Does God create order out of chaos? Paul even echoes Genesis 1-1 here. Or Genesis chapter 1. Paul says, 
In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. Now, what Paul is saying here is Paul's making an equation. He's saying, in the creation account, there was darkness and God created light. In your salvation experience, you were in darkness, you were in bondage, and God spoke light into your heart and made you come alive and gave you a brand new life so where for the very first time you could see who Jesus was in all of his glory. And not only could you see who Jesus was, but God changed your heart from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the news come. Now let me ask you a trick question. What's a greater miracle? God creating the heavens and the earth out of nothing or God recreating your sinful heart that was dead and bringing it to life? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're both miracles. I don't know if we can compare the two, but think about it for a moment. I don't want you to ever forget what God has done to you. If you are a Christian, God has taken you who were enslaved to sin, you were spiritually dead, you were under God's wrath, God made you alive in Christ by the miracle of His sovereign grace. You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to produce it. You were simply a recipient of God's sovereign work in your life. And it was like the day of creation where God said, let there be light. And there was. God said that in your dark heart, let there be light. And there was. And He gave you a new creation. Genesis 1 is the creation your life, it was a new creation. So we've seen the presence of God. We've seen the pattern. God takes chaos and brings order. God takes darkness and brings light. But let's third, and this is where we're going to spend probably the majority of our time tonight. We see the power of God. And this is most clearly expressed through His Word. So let's read verses 3 through 25, and I want you to count how many times it says, God said, okay? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning the third day. 
And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. How many times did you guys count? Or did you lose count? Seven? Yeah, probably seven or eight times. But it's very interesting. Have you ever thought about why did God create by speaking? Couldn't God have just like proverbial snapped his fingers and just said, or God could have thought the creation into existence? Why did God say it? Why were there successive days and why was there a process? Why did God have to speak the universe into existence? This very deep, this is a very strong theological point that you see from the very beginning of the Bible. God is a speaking God. God, from the very beginning, before there's ever any humans, God is a speaking God. He speaks through words. Now, when God speaks, what happens? Things happen when God speaks. So, when you think about it, God's word is one of the most powerful motifs throughout the Scripture. God chose to speak and reveal himself to man with words. God called to Adam and Eve with words. He told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with words. God used words to call Abraham to himself. God used words to give the Ten Commandments in words. God used words when the prophets would go and preach to the people. God calls the church into existence through his word. So let me just ask you a question. Why do you think the word is so central around here at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Why is preaching important? Why do I stand up every Sunday and you come to hear me say words? I don't show video clips, I don't do a song and dance. I don't do a puppet show. I don't do a skit. I don't have, I don't throw flames or have a light show or smoke and mirrors and motorcycles. Some churches do stuff like that, by the way. Why words? Why words? Because we believe that in the scriptures, God himself has spoken to us in authority 
and without error. And we want to bow in submission to those words. The reason we preach is, number one, God is a speaking God. Do you know what the first sermon is in the Bible? Right here. God preaches the universe into existence. So listen to what one writer has said. This is from a great book on preaching I had to read in seminary. Very deep book, but I like this quote. So so listen to what he says here. He says, God's revelation begins with a sermon. God preached and the world was made. God said, let there be light and there was light. Six sermons are preached in a wonderful sequence. The word of God is proclaimed in heaven's pulpit and all comes to pass. The preaching forms the universe. The word preached is no empty word. It accomplishes what it pleases and never returns void to him who speaks. Have you thought about that? God stands in heaven's pulpit and preaches the creation into existence with six sermons. God said, God said, God said. From the very beginning, God is telling us he is a speaking God, and when God speaks, things happen, and the universe obeys his word, and it comes into existence. And that's where faith comes into play. Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith. Now, here's the interesting thing. Was anybody there to witness creation, to record it? So how did Moses, who wrote this, know what to write? This is where liberal scholars will come in and say, well, you know, there's, these are like creation fables that different cultures have. Okay. If we believe in inerrancy of Scripture, if we believe the Holy Spirit guided, what did the Holy Spirit have to do to Moses? Reveal to him what happened so that he could write it down. Now, Moses uses a very specific word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Created. Bara. Hebrew word bara. It's a telic verb, and that's very important because it refers to the completed act of creation. And I'm going to explain that here in just a moment. You learn two things. Why, did, why this particular Hebrew word? There's other words for create that are in the Bible, but this is a very specific word. First, this word is used only exclusively of God. It's never used of a craftsman that creates an idol or a craftsman that creates wood. This specific word, bara, is only used of God. God's the only one. That, it's only used to describe what God alone does. So this is something God specifically does. And second, like I said, it's a telic verb. The way it's worded in the verbal form refers to the completed act of creation. God created in the sense that it does not mean God began the process of creating the cosmos and then just let it kind of do its course. This verb means that when God created it, it was completed. It wasn't like theistic evolution. It wasn't a process. It was an actual created event. And I'm going to teach you guys a Latin word. Does anybody know what ex nihilo means? It's not a character on Star Trek. Ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. God created out of nothing. 
Think about this. Was there anything there for God to create with? And if there was, who, who, who put it there? So if you say there's something there that God used to create, then you have to back up and say, well, who put it there? Well, God did. Well, how did it get there? Keep going further, further back. It had to all start with God. So God took nothing and created something out of nothing. Okay? Think about how amazing this is. And he did it with his words. God said, let there be. Psalm 33, 6-9. By the word of the Lord. This is the psalmist making a commentary. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. That's talking about the stars. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Notice how the psalmist is drawing attention to the authoritative power of God's word speaking creation and existence. And he says, because God has done this, we should stand in awe of him. And then you've got Colossians 1.16. This is talking more about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Paul's argument here, for by him, talking about the Lord Christ, by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this is not in your notes, but just a side note. Who created the heavens and the earth? Was it God the Father? Yes. Was it Jesus the Son? Yes. Was it God the Holy Spirit? Yes. All three persons of the Trinity were active in creation. We often just time think it's, well, it was just God the Father that did it. Remember that verse says, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Paul says that all things were created through Jesus. Okay, so in the creation account, these let there be, let there be, let there be, these successive days, we see God's sovereign way of doing things. And we're going to look at five key areas that are related to his powerful word. Now, remember, everything comes back to God's word. He spoke it into existence. He didn't think it into existence. He could have. He could have created in any way imaginable, but he chose to speak it. Okay, so let's look at these five aspects. We may get done early tonight, guys, which means you'll have great time for questions, hopefully. We'll see. All right, first, we see the commandment, let there be. Let there be. Now, you guys tell me, when you hear the commandment, let there be, who's in charge? What's God doing? I'm the one calling the shots here. Let there be light. And notice the immediate response. Let there be light, and there was light. It's not like light said, Oh, God, I don't think so. I don't want to come into existence, God. I don't want to obey you. What does light do when God says, Let there be light? It happens. Remember when Jesus came into... Um, on the triumphal entry, he comes in on the colt, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Pharisees said to the disciple, to Jesus, shut your disciples down. They're making too much noise. And what did Jesus say? Even if they remain quiet, the rocks will cry out. In other words, 
creation, inanimate objects, instantaneously obey the word of the Lord because God is sovereign. It's meant to draw our attention to the sovereignty of God. God said, let there be, and it was. There's no hesitation. He is absolutely sovereign. He's going to command it, and it's going to come to be. Second thing we see, a separation. There's a dividing the day and night, waters and land, fish and birds. Now, why does God divide? Now, think about the process here. God could have created anyway. Why does God create by dividing? There's a separation. There's, there's a thing called day. There's a thing called night. There's a thing called waters. There's a thing called land. There's fish of the air. There's fish of the sea, birds of the air. Why the separation? What God is showing from the very beginning is that in his economy, in his kingdom, there are boundaries and there is order. God is never a God of chaos. So back when Babe Ruth was playing baseball, and of course Babe Ruth was very famous, there was an umpire named Babe Pinelli, and um, he called a strike on the third pitch. And the crowd was booing, and everybody got crazy, and they were yelling at the umpire. Um, And Babe Ruth had a temper. And he went up to this umpire and said, there's 40,000 people here that know the last pitch was a ball, you tomato head. That's what he said. And everybody thought it was going to get really heated. And the coaches and the players came out. This was like, you know, back in the early days of baseball. They thought everybody was going to get ejected. There was going to be this big fight. Um, he kept getting in the umpire's face, you know, how they kind of punch each other around with their chest. Um, then it, the umpire kept us cool. And Babe Ruth was getting in his face and all red. The umpire said this, Maybe so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that counts. Because I'm the umpire. We live in a world that does not want God to have the only opinion that counts. When God creates with boundaries, when God creates with order, when God does things his way, his is the only opinion that counts. It's amazing that the Bible doesn't start with man at the center. It starts with God. Yes, we are unique humans created in the image of God, but God is the one who's in charge here. We are living in a culture that does not want God to be God, and they don't even know what they're doing. What do you think the whole transgender issue is? What do you think they're saying? This is not how I want to be. I want to choose how I want to be. I'm going to defy the created order of how God has set things, and I'm going to set my own boundaries. And I'm going to rebel, and I'm going to do what I want to do. That's why a lot of people said, we need to go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. God is sovereign. God calls the shots. God sets the agenda. God's opinion is the only one that counts. God is in control. So he sets the boundaries. He sets the order. The third thing we also see in this passage is when God creates, he names things. Notice notice what it says. He called God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. There's that separation. God called the the light day, 
In the darkness, he called night. God named it. God named it light. He gave it names. So not only did he create it, not only did he create boundaries, but he gave it a name. He called it. Again, this is another way of showing that God has dominion over his creation. They don't name, God doesn't create and say, hey, you name yourself. Light, think up of a cool name for yourself. Fish, think up of a cool name for yourself. The animals don't name themselves. Even we humans don't name ourselves. Every single one of creation is dependent upon God. God says it. There's an immediate obedience. God creates the order and the separation, and God names it. I mean, Moses is working overtime from the very beginning here to say that God is absolutely sovereign in creating. You can't get around it. Okay, fourth. We also see God's evaluation. He calls his creation good. Now, this is God's pronouncement of a blessing on what he created. Now, it's important to remember, when we get to chapter 3, we talk about the fall, it's important to realize that what God created in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, he called good. He blessed it. There was nothing improper. There was nothing sinful. There was nothing evil or impure about his creation. It was good before sin entered the world. What the fall, what's the opposite of, when, when, when God saw his creation and saw that it was good, what's the opposite of good? Bad. Everything goes south in chapter 3 because of Adam's sin. Okay, now we're going to get into the interesting stuff that other people may have more interest in than I do. So we may spend a lot of time on this if you have questions, or we may spend hardly any time on it. But for you scientific minds, we see the fifth thing we see is the chronological framework. Okay, how many days? Six days of creation followed by what? A seventh day of rest that God calls the Sabbath. Now, we'll get to that later on, I think next week. It's not because God was tired. Oh, man, that, that really wore me out to create those, those six days. That's not what's going on here. Now, there's been heavy debate as to the meaning of the word day. Six days. It's the Hebrew word yom. Have you ever heard of Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur just means the Day of Atonement. Kippur means to cover or to atone. Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. So Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Now here's the big question. Is it a literal 24-hour day? Or is it metaphorical for thousands of years or even millions of years? In other words, were these six literal 24-hour days or is this a metaphorical way of saying a lot of period of time? So let me lay my cards on the table and just tell you where I come down on. It's, it's, I'm not a scientific guy, and I take the Bible pretty plainly, so for me, I just view it as six literal 24-hour days. Um, I take it at face value. Um, I believe that God created the entire universe the way it was in six literal days. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, because this has been debated for 2,000 years in church history, and some of the strongest conservative voices in history have differed on this. Um, there are scholars that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture that have held to a literal 24-hour day like I do, and some have held to different 
opinions. Let's just remember something. Was the Bible given to us as a textbook? No. So there are some things that the Bible doesn't answer that we may want it to answer, but we have to read it at face value. No one was there to observe what happened. So the only evidence is what God wanted us to know in what Moses wrote down in the inspired account, and so I take it at face value. Now, again, I'm not a science guy. There's a lot of people that's like, where, where, where were, were dinosaurs on the ark? And what about the dinosaurs? And what about the ice age? And what about this and that? And there's some people that are a whole lot more into I just never got into that. When I was in high school, the big thing was end times. I got into end times. And then in my late, eh, maybe like mid to late 20s, it was Reformed theology and stuck in that ever since and don't really care about it. No, I, just these science stuff, I'm just not into it. So I'm okay with there being differences of opinion. Now, there may be some of you here that are like, okay, do you really believe it's a 24-hour literal day sequence? I'm a little skeptical. And so let me just address some common objections because maybe you think it's longer. And again, I, I respect you for that. Um, but let me just, let's talk about a big objection that a lot of people have, and that is theistic evolution. Okay, theistic evolution. There's Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution is basically what you would think of as evolution, where just kind of there's a big bang. And even Don was telling me the other day, because of this new, um, what's that new probe that's going out there that's the new space? It replaced the Hubble. What's it called? Come on, people. She knows what it's called. It's called the McGreg what's it called? The McGregor or something? Anyway, she reads up on this stuff because she likes space. My, my wife and my son, like, they like astronomy and space, and they like to look at all the constellations, and let's go out and see the comet. And I'm like, ah, I'd rather stay in and watch something on TV. I'm not, I mean, not that I'm not into it. It's just they're big time into it. And so Don was telling me that actually these, these um, scientists have been thinking that the, that the universe has been expanding because it's like a big bang. And they're finding out from the data that's coming back from this space probe that actually it, it counteracts the big bang theory and shows more of a one point in time creation by something, a higher, a higher thing. Um, so that's Darwinian evolution. There are Christians that believe in theistic evolution. And this view says God did create, but God chose to do it through a process of evolution. So God sovereignly guided the process so the result was just what he wanted it to be, and it took over a million years. So it's protecting the fact that God is the one that created it, but it wasn't six literal days. It may have taken millions of years. And what we have today is what God wanted, and he superintended the process. But it wasn't like a six consecutive literal 24-hour days. That's theistic evolution. Um, now, let me just kind of tell you why I kind of land on the 24-hour literal day. First... We see from Genesis, one, that God is purposeful and intricate in his work of creation and not random. The theistic evolution basically says there's, 
all these different variables that happen through mutations and all this kind of stuff. And what you see from the very beginning is God doing things very meticulous. Um, verse, verse 24, what does verse 24 tell us? Look at how meticulous verse 24 is. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. According to their kind. Their species. There's nothing here about like an evolution of species over time. It was God who created those separate kinds on that day. Now, here's just kind of a weird thought. If God looked at his completed creation and saw that it was very good, it would mean that he would have to observe millions of mutations until he got what he wanted. Wayne Grudem said it like this. Oh, go ahead, Cindy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, let me get the quote, then you can ask your question. Um, Wayne Grudem said it like this. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And after 387 million attempts, God finally made a mouse that worked. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to restate your question for for Facebook. So just to let you know, I'm going to restate your question. Okay, go ahead. So what she's saying is that sin brought death into the world and that sin came from Adam and so death only came when Adam sinned. Before that, there was not death. And if you have a fossil record of millions of years, you had a lot of death happening. Is that basically what you're saying? Let me give you the counter-argument to that because I've heard people say this. The counter-argument to that is, well, that, when, when Adam brought sin into the world, that was only humans. That didn't count for animals. And the whole earth groans, his argument in Romans chapter 8. I'm just telling you what they say. They'll say things like, well, that's just human death. But there probably could have been millions of years of dinosaurs dying um, because of the fall. Um, So you almost have like two falls. You have death, 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 and then you finally have when Adam sins, death. So, yeah, that's a good good observation. So the scriptures, and again, you can disagree with me. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. The scriptures indicate that this was an instantaneous act of creation. That word bara is very, very key. Number one, it's out of nothing that God brought forth every living creature according to its kind. And it was in a completed state. Did God create Adam and Eve as infants? How did he create them? Full grown. Now, I don't know if the animals were full-grown, if he, if he created the animals as baby animals and they grew up, or they're full-grown, or he created a tree and it was a full-grown tree, or he created a mountain and it was a full-grown mountain. Um, we just know that it was instantaneous, not necessarily through a process of millions of years of mutations. Now, let me give you another scripture just to think about this word yom, day, Hebrew word yom. Okay. Some people think, because they'll say, to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So therefore, a day can, be, a day can mean a thousand years. Or it can mean a literal 24-hour day. I would say context depends upon that. Um, I think it's metaphorical when it's talking about a day can be like a thousand years. Um, so 
Let's look at that word day, yom. If you go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, talking about the Sabbath, okay, what does God say about the Sabbath? Remember the Sabbath day, okay, the same Hebrew word yom. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days, there's yom, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, now let's just talk about this for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Who is the author of Genesis? Not a trick question. Moses. Who's the author of Exodus? Moses. Same author, right? Same author that wrote Genesis 1 wrote Exodus 20. Okay. We have a little bit of in Scripture interpreting Scripture here. Okay, so what is Moses making a reference to? He's going back to Genesis and it's apparent from his word of the use day. How is he using the Sabbath? Remember the Sabbath day. Is he saying, remember the Sabbath day, which is like a thousand years, and keep it whole? What's he? How is he treating the Sabbath day here as a literal 24-hour day? And then what does he say in the exact next sentence? Four and six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. So they were not to work. Okay, it's not, Moses is saying, okay, work for 6,000 years. And then on the 7,000 year, you can come to a rest. Now, they were to work literally for six literal days. And then on the literal seventh day, they were to rest. And Moses then compares that to how God did his work of creation. Now, hopefully I didn't bore you with a lot of scientific stuff here and a lot of figures and yom. The one thing that I want you to understand is because I've had arguments with people, and I said, okay, let's, where can we agree? Okay, and I, here's my point of agreement. Do you believe that God created out of nothing? Yes. Do you believe God is the sovereign creator of all things? Yes. Do you believe Adam and Eve were literal people that God created? Yes. Do you believe Adam and Eve brought sin and death and judgment into the world and thus the need for Jesus? Yes. Great. I can agree with you on that. If you believe that took a million years, and I believe it took like six little days, at least we agree upon the fundamentals that it was God sovereignly doing it. It was out of nothing. There's no Darwinian evolution. Adam and Eve were real people, and they brought sin into the world, and thus the need for a Savior. You understand what I'm saying? So the thing that we see here in chapter 1, God's presence, he's there from the very beginning. God's pattern, chaos into order, darkness into light. God's power, he does it by his word. God is sovereign through the entire process. But there's one thing we also see over and over again. Light. The theme of light. Did you ever wonder why light's created first and light actually comes before the sun? Did you catch that? Go, go back and go, let's go back and read this carefully. Maybe you never caught this before. 
What's the first thing that's created? Verse 3. Let there be what? Light, and there was light. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now, go down to... Verse 14, God said, let there be lights, plural, in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the earth to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to light the day, which would be what? The sun, the lesser light to rule the night, that would be the moon, and the stars. So you've got the fourth day, God creating the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. What did God create on the first day? Light. So where did this light come from? We infer that God himself He's telling us something here. There's, there's a theological thing God wants us to know. He is the source of light. And it's setting up for John chapter 1. How does John begin his gospel? I'm going to read it to you. It sounds just like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth what, how does John 1.1 1, 1 start? This is talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, who's the Word? That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What's John telling us here? Going all the way back to Genesis. This theme of light. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. And Jesus has always existed. So you could almost say, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, the source of the light that God created on the first day, who's the source of that light? could be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, shining forth the glory of God. Jesus is always, I want to show you some grammar in that passage of Scripture, okay? I wish I had a whiteboard up here. I'll teach you a little Greek, okay? You ready? Ready for your Greek lesson tonight? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, you guys tell me, what type of verb is was? What's the, what's the root word of was? Is that a present tense or a past tense verb? Past tense verb. Okay, what's the, what's the present tense verb of was? Is or to be. Okay, does it say in the beginning is the Word? No, it says in the beginning was. Okay, so was is a past tense verb. The Greek language has different types of past tense verbs. There's simple action past tense, which we call aorist tense. I kicked the ball. I ran on the track. I went to the store. That's not what verb John uses. 
He uses what's called an imperfect. The imperfect means continuous action in the past tense. I was running to the store. I was running on the treadmill for 30 minutes. I was driving across country. Continuous action in the past. Okay, so if this is continuous action in the past, what's the verb? To be. What's John saying here? You can translate this way. In the beginning, the word always was. This is talking about the preexistence of Jesus, that he never had a beginning. He has always existed as the word. Now, is the word the same person as the Father? No, because the word was with God. How can you be with yourself? Do you see two persons there? The word and God. You've got Jesus the Son, God the Father. Two distinct persons. God has always existed. Jesus has always existed. But the question is, is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus the same person as the Father? No. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm just trying to tell you that there are three distinct persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who all share the same essence of God, who've always preexisted, have always been, but they're three distinct persons. And Jesus always has been. And he never was created. Now, let me tell you how the Jehovah's Witnesses translate that verse. You know how they translate that verse? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a lowercase God. They do not believe Jesus was God in the flesh. They believe Jesus was a created, they believe Jesus was Michael the archangel and was a created being. He was the first created being, as opposed to being there before creation as God. So, Jesus is the light of the world. So, Genesis sets the stage for almost all the themes of salvation that you see in Jesus. Think about the themes that we've seen so far in Genesis 1. Like all the things that, we've, that, that God has established. God is sovereign. He does all things for his glory. In the beginning, God... God creates order out of chaos. God creates through the power of his word. God creates light first as a symbol pointing to Jesus being the light of the world. So in this first chapter of Genesis, you have a lot of the themes and motifs that are going to show up through the rest of the Bible. The sovereignty of God. The power of God the word of God, the majesty of God, all culminating in Jesus being the light of the world, the full expression of God sent into the world to save us out of darkness into light. So Genesis is about the king of the kingdom, and it all centers on Jesus. Now, do you realize... So I teach, a, I teach a biblical interpretation class at Colorado Christian University. And this class is a fun class. I wish it was an in-seat class, but it's an online class. They have to pick a passage in the book of Ephesians, and they've got to do an um, in-depth exposition of their passage. So they've got to do word studies. They've got to do exegetical work. And so I'm helping them out. And so one of the big, the last question, in our, we, there's, there's five weeks. And so session five, discussion question. I pose the question, what is the central theme 
of the book of Ephesians? What's the thesis of Ephesians? What's the main point of Ephesians? And a lot of them will give me different things, and there, there's no necessarily like wrong answer, but let me tell you what I think the theme of Ephesians is. It's Ephesians 1.10, and here's why I believe that. God says he's, he has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, and this is talking about Jesus, unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. What's God's plan? God's plan is that everything centers on Jesus in heaven and on earth. That word unite. The ESV says unite. NIV translates it a different way. New New American Standard translates it a different way. The New King James translates it a different way. You know what the word is in the Greek? It's where we get our word thesis. What does thesis mean? It's the main point. So here's the point. What's the main point of everything? What's God's, what, if God has a plan, what's his main plan? What's his main point? What's his thesis? To have everything center on heaven and on earth in Jesus. For his son Jesus to be the center of everything. All things in heaven and all things in earth find their fullness, their purpose, their meaning, their center in Jesus. God created for his glory, and that glory shines most brightly through Jesus, who died on the cross, rose again, ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand, will come back in power and glory, and we're going to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, centered on Jesus. So here's the final question. Do you bow before the sovereign God, who created all things for his glory, the power of his word to point us all to Christ. So Genesis is not meant to be a, hey, I want to have a debate about seven or six literal days of creation. No, Genesis should make you fall on your knees and worship and say, we serve a sovereign God who's absolutely majestic and everything points to Jesus as being the light of the world. We need to go back to Genesis, to the beginning, because all the themes throughout the rest of the Bible are going to show up in the first few verses of the Bible there in Genesis. So, I didn't take a water break tonight, which means I must be pretty well hydrated. Do you guys have any questions? We're gonna, I'm going to talk about something here in just a minute after the live stream goes off related to Adventure Club, but do you guys have any questions? Or comments? Glenn or Snyder Marks? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a puzzling. So, Glenn's question is why does it say the earth was without form and void? It's like this water blob. So there's a water blob of chaos that God brings into order. Okay, Now, how that water blob of chaos got there, we have to realize God created it. And that's the way he wanted it to come into existence, was through this 
Again, why is it a water? I don't know why I call it a watery blob. What is? What are the words there? What do your translations say? Formless, void, and the fa- face of the waters. I call it a water blob. <laughs> I don't have anything else to call it. Did you, I mean, what, what do your translations use? Do they use without form and void? So, yes, God created it, but he created it that way because the pattern is from that to bring it into order. So God is, God is doing this on purpose to show that he has a system of taking things, even if he created it that way, that apparently seem to be chaotic and out of order and brings order to them. And I think it's a picture of our life before Christ. We were dead in our sins. We were without hope. And God took what was desperately wicked and transformed it into order through salvation. What does your commentary say? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, and there is. That's called the gap theory. Some people call it the gap theory. Yeah, I don't think I've, Brent, you and I have talked about this over the years. The gap theory basically says there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-2. So God created the heavens and the earth, and then, like, there's this long gap for, like, millions of years, and then, yeah. I have a book in my office if you want to borrow it. It's called, basically it presents, like, 11 or 12 different evangelical conservative views of creation. Not, we're not talking liberal or Darwinian. We're talking evangelical Christian. There's like, fifth, like, I think there's like 11 views. And he gives the strengths and weaknesses of all of them. He never tells them which one he, I don't like when authors do that. Do you like when authors do that? I'm going to give you 11 of these, and they never tell you which one's theirs. Like, come on. Come down on, come down on one at least. That was like my systematic theology class in seminary. We had the worst textbook. It was, I won't, I won't mention the textbook. But anyway, in case somebody's out there listening. But that author never came down on anything. It's like, there's this view, there's this view. The Calvinists believe this, the Arminians believe this, the Lutherans believe this. And it's like, and which view do you believe, you coward? And he just like never told us what he believed. And it was like, oh, goodness, just land on something and tell us what you are. Even if I disagree with you, just tell us. Yes, Brent. Yeah, I think what I think I'm kind of reiterate what Brent. What I think what you're saying is that God, if you deny a literal 24-hour day, you're basically saying, "Oh, God couldn't. God couldn't make it look like that. God couldn't create like that." Uh, is that kind of what you're? 
what you're saying or Yeah. 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 So let me tell you where I am personally on this. So dogmatism. There's two things I'm not dogmatic on. I'm not dogmatic on the beginning or the end. Okay. Because I wasn't there at the beginning and I'm not there at the end yet. So um, if somebody's absolutely dogmatic on how it all happened and somebody's dogmatic on how it's all going to end, you need to have a little bit of grace because um, there's fine Christians all across the map that are strong evangelical conservative Christians that have different views of the end times and they have different views of creation. So I think we have room to, I mean, we can have our strong views and say, hey, this is what my view is, this is where I land, but I think if you start judging other believers and saying they're not Christians because they hold to a different view of end times or whatever, or they don't hold to a literal six. I've known some people that say, if you don't hold to a literal six-day creations, you are denying the Bible and you are not a Christian. And I would say, eee, because some of the greatest minds in history that are evangelical conservative Christians did not necessarily believe that. Yes, is there a question on Facebook? Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Yes, everybody's born with a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36 says, God, I will take out their heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Acts 16-ish, 19-ish, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Um, so yes, I'm talking to the camera because I don't know who this is. Yes, who? Marlo. Okay, yes, Marlo. So Marlo, yes, everybody's born with a heart of stone. And Actually, God does not replace those who seek him. God takes the initiative to seek you. And so God's going to change the heart of stone of those whom God has chosen to do so. And once you become regenerate, once you become a Christian, once God's done that, you can't go back to having a heart of stone in the sense of being lost or unsaved. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go through periods of dryness, periods of disobedience, where it may feel like you have a heart of stone, because you're walking in disobedience. But if you're truly saved and God has done that work, you can't go back to being unsaved. Um, but if you're walking in disobedience or you're walking in, um, you know, you're not having fellowship with God, it may feel like you're numb or you, your heart's kind of cold to the things of the Lord, but it doesn't mean you're not saved. And Marlo, if you have, I'm, I'm glad you're watching Marlo. You can always text me if you have other questions. Um, so, or you can talk to me Sunday. Love, love to 